1: Hi there, and thank you very much for tuning in. My name is Louis Strong and you are listening to Headstrong. This is season three of my podcast called Creatives in Conversation. With the turmoil of 2020, I wanted to take some time to sit down with a variety of creatives to talk about their experiences so far this year, including with coronavirus and the Black Lives Matter movement. But I also wanted to talk to them about their journeys, to how they've got to where they are today, including all the highs and lows to reach that success. This podcast is about inspiring you, the listener, to understand what it means to be headstrong. And to me, it means to believe in yourself, to talk about your vulnerabilities and reinforce your self-worth. This is episode three of season three. And I am delighted to share with you an insightful and stimulating conversation with filmmaker, director, stylist and writer, Besma Khalifa. Now, Besma has a rich and colourful CV with a vast array of work, much like her own journey and upbringing. Most notably, she created a documentary for the BBC about exploring her roots in Saudi Arabia, where some of her family still live today. I really hope you enjoy this conversation, and if you do, please do leave a review. Enjoy. Hello, Vesma. Thank you very much for joining me on Headstrong. I really appreciate it.
0: Thanks for having me. I'm quite excited to have this conversation.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. I mean, I think it's a very interesting time to be having a conversation with someone of your background, Mm. um, upbringing, and everything that you've been up to in the last kind of few years i mean uh, you there's so much that we can talk about on top of your own interests and inspirations and whatnot but if you're happy to have this conversation then let's crack on
0: yeah yeah i have to say that you are the questions because obviously you pre-sent me questions and i was like this guy has done his research I was like, my <laughs> entire background am i that visible on the internet that you know so much
1: i like, i I, I do not leave many stones left unturned left i've stone. got to say but i mean i hope i hope um what we're going to talk about today captures a little bit of everything about you mm. um, um just cuz i like to talk about a lot a lot of different things um but also just kind of you know touch on touch on the important stuff as well
0: yeah for sure
1: i mean just from like talking to you now though i mean the most striking thing for me particularly is your your accent <laughs> yeah <laughs> um which is you know i i mean i would probably you, i don't know what what people say to you i would probably use the term international accent oh, um, but yeah, you
0: international interesting
1: I mean okay. usual I mean you have you've you were born in Saudi, you, yeah. you moved to Ireland, you've lived in Scotland. I mean, mm-hmm. what is what is that um that timeline? How would you
0: yeah. what would so you describe I, your
1: accent?
0: Yeah, well I guess yeah, I was born in Saudi Arabia and then I yeah, I'm originally from Sudan, born in Saudi Arabia and I grew up in Northern Ireland until I was about twelve, I'd say, twelve, thirteen, and then I moved to Scotland. I was in a little town called Dumfries for three years and then I went to uni, or four years, and then I went to uni in Scotland and Glasgow um, for three years and then I moved to New York and then I moved to London. So, yeah, okay, we'll go international, I guess.
1: I mean, but you've previously talked about your own identity on, on podcasts and interviews yeah. and, of course, on, on your documentary, um, which is what, what has made made you more, more noticeable in the public yeah. eye um, on the BBC called uh, Inside the Real Saudi Arabia, which we will come on and talk about, of course. Um, we could not leave that uh, stone unturned. But um, I have heard you uh, mention before on um, a platform that you wanted to be a blue Peter. Presenter, (laughs) which of course is a massive part of like a nineties or naughties childhood. Where where did your passion to work in the creative industry stem from?
0: I think I've just always been a bit of a loudmouth. What I liked about Blue Peter, God, in my yearbook in high school, my most likely to be was a Blue Peter presenter because I think that I have always had a very like inquisitive nature, and I loved Blue Peter. I loved that these to go to places and talk to people and do things that weren't just entertainment TV because I think. Even though I probably have a personality that works for entertainment TV, I just wanted to do something that had a bit of a messaging, and I think that's where Blue Peter came in because it was the one TV show when we were kids that I was like, oh, like I'm learning something, but it's like fun. So um, yeah, I kind of, I guess I was a loud mouth. I always just talked. I was a talker. My dad always says you were the one I wasn't worried about between you and your two brothers because you just you don't stop talking. So um, yeah, I guess I'll always from birth, maybe.
1: So maybe even so even at school it was never a far-fetched idea that you were going to be in in, in a creative in, in in some way and it was never well, a dream that was too far out of reach.
0: Well no to be honest actually it was never in the forefront of my mind. I wanted to be a primary school teacher. I wanted to work with kids. I wanted to work in a nursery. I just always loved I'm very maternal in that sense. Like I've always just wanted to be around babies. And then um <laughs> I had a summer in Sudan with a really awful little cousin. I was like, I can't do this. I can't do this full time. I can't be around kids that are, maybe some kids aren't nice. I don't want to do this full time. And actually, media came in quite late. I was just doing my UCAS forms applying for universities. And um, I looked at a fashion business course that was primarily from a business school for my very conservative parents who were just like, you need to study something that will actually get you a degree. Uh, with fashion elements and it sort of started from there but I was in fashion I did fashion for my whole career and um, media and sort of tv and radio has only come in the last three two and a half three years. yeah
1: sure I mean we'll talk we'll definitely talk about like your your journey into the the creative industries particularly into to fashion and then PR work and whatnot yeah. but I, I mentioned identity there and voice and they're very much intertwined and you know they you have to have a synergy between identity and voice so what is your definition of identity uh, and what are the key principles and qualities you think one should kind of retain when it comes to your own identity
0: i think identity the the beautiful thing about identity is it's a very individual thing no one has the same identity nor are they are they meant to so for me when it comes to identity in the way i sort of i even identify myself i just think how I see myself and how I perceive myself and also how I present myself publicly is very individual to me. And I think once you can embrace that, you can sort of like get through life a bit easier because you can understand yourself. I think identity is all about understanding, if I'm honest. Understanding who you are and how you position yourself. I think a lot of people, and myself included, I struggled with my identity because I never really grew up anywhere where I was like, could maybe go on a discovery that only sort of happened when I moved to New York and then London. So I think that I've only really started to understand my identity in the last maybe couple of years, which considering I've been alive for 30 years, it's quite a long time. But I really love where I'm at now because I'm still on this, like, figuring out who I am as a black woman, as a woman. And especially in the climate we're in right now, it's ongoing in my mind. Identity is ongoing because it changes with every experience you have.
1: Exactly. I think identity is a, it's a journey and one that is ongoing until the day that we're no longer here. You know, you're constantly interpreting your experiences and, and and things that have happened in your past, but also how your future can also shape you, your surroundings, everything.
0: Mm -hmm. I definitely agree.
1: Um, you seem like extremely positive outgoing, but you're like very calm, collected as well. Um, (laughs) You've talked about having a a big mouth, maybe when you were younger as well. Did, did, did you so you, you said that you struggled a little bit with your, your own identity growing up did it, did it like was it, did it mentally affect you because obviously mental health when we were growing up wasn't necessarily as a, a topical conversation as it is now, but of course the, that doesn't take away the importance of what could have been you know um what, what, what we are experiencing when we're growing up. so did it affect you in that way? Um, did you experience any kind of loneliness or just struggled with your identity itself?
0: You know what? Growing up in Northern Ireland was very interesting because I think that you can't miss what you don't know. So as much as it was like, yeah, I'd love to, you know, did I see things and then feel like I missed out or anything? We didn't have Instagram. We didn't have really Facebook. We didn't have any of these social things. So I didn't know any different. I didn't know what life was like outside my very white Irish bubble. So I couldn't sort of be like, I missed, Something, or I don't understand something because I couldn't see it to miss it. So, in that sense, I didn't struggle with identity until maybe social media started happening. And especially when I moved to London, I was like, something for me doesn't click. I love, love my friends, but there is a disparity between being black and white that I think there's just certain experiences that they don't understand. That I go through in everyday life when it comes to racism, and there's experiences that maybe I don't understand of theirs. And that is genuinely culture and race of things you don't understand. So I think definitely, I don't think I struggled when I was younger cause I don't think I knew the difference, but I think I struggled more as an adult. And I think it really? affected me more. Yeah, as my mental health suffered a lot more as an adult. Cause I felt a little bit lost and who I was, who I was and who I was trying to be. So yeah, I'm, I'd still
1: I think a lot, of, yeah, a lot of people have that relationship with social media because as soon as you, it's, a, it's such a beast. I mean, you literally, you can be absorbed and sucked in and you can, you can devote your life to something like that. Mm. Uh, and, and that can really, really affect you mentally mm. for sure. And I, I completely agree, but I mean, it also gave you a a platform to share your voice. So yeah. it, with all its, um, shortcomings, there are, there are some of course benefits to social media, which I, I would, I would argue as well. Um, but when you started to find your own identity and voice did this come from your kind of personality of getting into the creative industries so i know you did your your business degree but then you started doing fashion and exploring your creative abilities did that did that contribute to your your voice and identity
0: oh yeah 100% 100% i think that going into fashion i was in P- i did pr in new york for a little while um which was incredible i was actually um Part of an agency called People's Revolution, which at the time was on an MTV show as well. So there's an element of being on MTV at the same time as actually working in PR. And then I left New York because it just wasn't—I was too young to be there, and too—I I already knew very early on that I get swallowed up by that city if I stayed. So I moved to London and sort of went through PR and sort of started understanding myself because I was like, mm, I'm way too selfish for PR. It's a very selfless thing, PR. You really have to care about other people. And I do, of course, but not like to the extent where I feel like I could promote them well Um, because I didn't even really know how to promote myself. Um So then I went into styling and I think styling is where I suddenly slowly started figuring out who I was and what identity was because clothes just had such a heavy meaning in my own culture, let alone in Western culture. And then I guess that's how TV happened. I think with TV... I always said I wanted to do TV, but I never wanted to do TV unless I had a message and I had a voice and I had something to say. So I went on a little like self-discovery for two years, I guess. And then I was like okay, like, okay, this is what it means to be black. This is what it means to be a woman. This is what it means to be a black woman. This is what it means to be Muslim and black and a woman and all these different strands of who I am. And then slowly getting to that, I was like, okay, now I feel I can have a voice. But it's funny when you said, you know, social media... Gives, gave me a voice or gave me a things to talk about things that mattered to me. I, I never positioned myself like that. I never was like these are the things that matter and these are the things I'm going to talk about. I just talk, like I just say stuff that I think about. I don't. It's not, it's not controlled enough to think about. If you know what I mean.
1: Sure. I mean, at the end of the day, I what I think what I meant with the social media comment is it's just another route for freedom mm. of speech. No, really? And it's just another place, another place to to share your thoughts, no matter how they come out, whether they're collected or just, uh, you know, or Kanye, or whether they're collected or Kanye. Yeah, collected or Kanye. I might get that <laughs> on a T-shirt. Yeah. That's nice. I like that. Um, but let's—I was just—let's look at New York there for a second. So, mm-hmm. and and also London. What well, you've just talked about, big cities there briefly. What you were doing. Um, you were working in New York.
0: Do you know what? New York is very different. New York is, is definitely, definitely the city that doesn't sleep. It just never stopped. And I think I didn't love PR that much. And I find this isn't even to do with being black or to be doing a woman. The New York personality is very different. American personality to British personality. I grew up Irish. I'm so sarcastic. I'm so dry. I'm so like that width that I think British people have, but almost Irish people have more I just would say things and my <laughs> New York friends I'd made would be like, I don't understand. Are you like joking? Because that's like not funny. And I was like, no, no, it's definitely a joke. It's sarcasm. Like I'm, I'm, be- I'm definitely being sarcastic. And they were like, well, that's not funny. And I was like, oh, we have a genuine sense of humor issue <laughs> that I think actually makes a huge difference in British sensibilities because we're so dry. So I find that quite tricky because I was like, how do you click? I realized that actually in the UK we click over humor. And it's not maybe the same in the states.
1: Yeah, there's a cultural divide, isn't there? I yeah. mean, it's just the the way the way that the the co- comedy is very much shaped over there. You know, also I feel like quite often they don't you, have you ever. I mean, on Netflix, there's a load of American yeah. comedians, and on, on on there's a load of British comedians. Mm-hmm. The crudeness and like the swearing and some of the British stuff I find hilarious. Yeah, but then in the American stuff, they'll make jokes out of like, you know, the most I don't know. I yeah
0: know. it's even on chat shows here like when americans come to do chat shows and i used to watch like graham norton or jonathan ross or whatever and they always used to say like americans used to be like oh my god we can swear here because we're just yeah, right. like, whatever like who cares it's not politics. Yeah. so new york exactly. definitely it was a journey but for me new york was a big identity hit because it's the first time i'd been anywhere that was very culturally diverse um mm, i mean sure. yeah going from northern ireland and scotland to there i was like i remember phoning my dad and i was like there's all sorts of people here I was like I'm sitting beside different people of different colors and different ethnicities and my dad was like yeah that's the world I was like well I don't know that's the world like I didn't know what that meant so that was definitely big for me to well I remember sitting on the tube in New York and Brooklyn and being like there are so many different looking people on this tube and I've never seen this
1: so I think, yeah, as you say, living in the cities, it's allowed you to explore and and see more. And again, that's as a part of discovering your identity. Yeah. But you left. So you left PR work though. Yeah. Um, and that PR work, as you have said, was maybe rather draining and and mm. selfless. But I have no doubt that it probably allowed you to build up a roster of contacts. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah,
0: uh, yeah. And
1: that that must have must have played a big part in the future. right?
0: Hundred percent. I mean, media, TV, fashion, whatever it is it's all about who you know and how to get in. Of course, it's about how savvy and witty and whatever else you can be, but a huge part of it is about who you know. So I think that going to New York and being under People's Revolution, it was, at the time, it was quite big on MTV, so I could definitely use that as a pull when coming back to the UK, because I was like, well, I've worked, my boss was called Kelly Katron. I've worked for this woman called Kelly Katron and everyone was like, whoa, like, because she was a big deal at the time. So I think that, um... Definitely that helped. But I also think that what helped was that I was very forthcoming personality wise. I always was, you know, I always wanted to go the extra mile. I always wanted to do more. I always was like, I'll get the coffee, I'll get the dry cleaning, I'll do this, I'll do that. I was that girl that was like there so that if anyone ever asked for anything, I'd be like, well, I can do it. Even if I didn't know how to do it, I was like, I can do it.
1: You were committed and you were all in. Yeah. And I think that's. And that's very, it's a, it's a very likable trait because yeah. no one likes, no one likes somebody who tries to stay, stay back. You know what I mean? You want someone yeah. who's fully committed and 100% yeah. in. Um, so let's talk about your journey to how, how the documentary came about. Mm. Um, I just, so how did the doc, how did the documentary materialize? <laughs> who approached who? Was it your idea? Was it your concepts? How did the BBC come, come to um, sort it out? How did it all come about? What was the so journey, the if you're allowed to talk about it?
0: Oh, yeah, I'm totally allowed to talk about it. It's my journey. Um, yeah. so... <laughs> Good, there we go. So the documentary came about because I um, I actually really started thinking about doing more and more TV. And I think a lot of people had said to me, you know, you should consider doing entertainment TV. You should consider doing, you know, this mornings and all those kind of things. And I was like, oh, I just feel like I, I, feel like I want to do something else. So after I sort of figured out my voice a little bit, definitely – went on a huge journey living in London and committing to experiencing being black in London, which was a huge deal for me and being around more black people and having more black friends and sort of seeing myself back was a really important part of my, you know, progression and identity definitely. And I think from there I was sort of like, okay, well, I feel like I, could, I have a voice now and I kind of can talk about things that I actually do care about that I didn't even realize I cared about. So it started off with me being on set one day. I was styling one day, and I was talking to the agent of one of the um, celebrities. And I was, talk- I just was like, you know, what? I was, you know, I was thinking about doing this thing or whatever. And she was like, two things. Like, she was like, first of all, you need to show real because great that you want to make TV, but you kind of need to prove it at this point. Instagram still wasn't, you know, it was it was big but not huge. Influencers weren't as big. I don't mm-hmm. even back then. So. She was like, you know, you need to make a show reel to show who you are and what you can do. Um, and she was like, I advise you make that with a professional company, which in hindsight now probably was silly because it cost its insane amount of money. And um, she was like, talk to people, talk to people about what you want to do. And actually, that was my biggest learning curve in making the documentary, talking about it. Talk about what you want to do, because if you talk about it, people are going to be like, there will be people that are like, "Oh yeah, yeah, I know someone who knows someone who knows someone. if you don't talk about things, no one can help you So once I started talking, I made a showreel long story short, made a show reel, started using that I spoke to I emailed a commissioner at BBC three and I can't believe he got back to me, but he did, and he was like, "You know, uh, you sound great and we, I really like your vibe, but you can't do things through a production company. TV doesn't work like that. you have to go to a production company and they pitch." sort of on your behalf, which I still think is kinda of weird because I can pitch myself better than anyone. Yeah, right. else, I mean. But whatever, that's the way they do things. So they were like find some production company. So what I did is I used to watch loads of documentaries anyway, but I watched loads and loads of documentaries, wrote down all the cat all the team of all the ones that I really liked how they were shot, and I just contacted everyone. I went on LinkedIn, I found emails, I emailed everyone and I found a guy, incredible, an incredible exec called Mickey Monstradi, who At the time, I made quite a lot of Stacey Dooley's programs and I emailed him on LinkedIn. I added him and I was like, hi, I've got some ideas. He emailed me back literally within the hour. and was like, let's talk. I went in and saw him the next morning. We talked for three hours and he was like, all this sounds amazing, but where did you start? Where is your journey? And I was like, well, I was born in Saudi Arabia, blah, 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 blah. And he's like, wait, wait, stop. Stop. Stop." (laughs) He was like, that's the story. When were you last there? And I was like, I haven't been there in like 25 years. And he was like, that's the storyline. That's it. You haven't been back to your mother country where you were born. You don't know what it was like. You don't know what it could have been like to live there. Let's get the ball rolling. But I have to say, he, and it only takes one person to truly, truly believe in you when you have nothing and you don't have, I wasn't, I'd never been on TV before, but he was like, I see something in you. At the time I'd also completed a little course that BBC do, which is called Women in TV, where they try and get more women in TV. So I did a little bit of radio and I'd done a bit of BBC News and Women's Hour and all those things. So I had a little bit of I guess media knowledge. But yeah, we pitched it. And the BBC declined it four or five times. and we just kept really? like, oh, Yeah, they were like, Yeah, she's cool, but like why why her? Why now? Then it became why now, then it, and then slowly why now happened because the Saudi government got the new crown prince and when they got the new crown prince they were I was like well they're going to change the country so it makes sense this is why now um they still said no (laughs) and then I I ran and I didn't run into him I attended an event that the commission that we pitched to was at and I cornered him in the last 30 seconds of the event I was like I've got an idea that I really need you to see and he was like I get 700 ideas like a week I don't know what your idea is and I was like yeah can I repitch it and he's like yeah have Mickey email me Mickey emailed him and it got greenlit within that week amazing yeah
1: it's it goes to show actually that probably when you started pitching the show itself maybe even the country Saudi Arabia itself was not ready for what you were going to produce and what the idea was so actually timing is everything and and what what was materialized I won't i mean you can maybe give it give your elevator pitch on on the documentary for anyone who hasn't watched it but i have no doubt that you know people have of course seen it but yeah i mean that that was a right a real platform and right time for you to do do something like that
0: Mm -hmm. i completely completely agree with you i 100 100 percent believe in the power of timing it wasn't right for me to go when i pitched it you know and You know, I make it sound like such a warm story, but this was a five-year process to getting it on the TV. And you have to see it out. You have to know that things do not happen overnight. And I was, I struggled. I had no money. I couldn't really pay rent. I was everything. I'd put everything into this. I was so, I concentrated on so much. And my family were like, listen, at some point, you got to kind of think about other things to do. And I was like, no, I know I can do this. But it takes that strength because... It's not an overnight success, that's for sure.
1: No, I mean, the the creative industry is one of those places where it's so difficult to succeed. Uh, and of course, I commend you on the success of the, the documentary. It reached millions. It's been viewed by so many, picked up with the BBC, of course. Uh, and it's just going from strength to strength. What was that experience like the the pre pre-production let's let's draw a line under those 5 years which you know must have been tough but mm. when you were shooting it and started thinking this is actually happening now was that a bit of a whirlwind experience when it started when the when it, the ball got rolling
0: uh yes and no i mean of course the whole pre-production of everything is different when you're like you know having to think of storylines and what you're going to do and how you're going to do it but like i went out there with Jess who's incredible my um director Jess and It was just the two of us. And we went to Saudi and I stayed with my aunts. It was my family. It didn't feel weird. Jess was so, so incredible and sort of making it all seem very chill and very relaxed. I didn't feel really like the camera was there at all. But I was filming with my family. I felt like I was on holiday. It didn't feel that. It was intense and it was a bit stressful at times. But like typical me, I didn't really think about the consequences of like opening my big mouth. I was just like, let's just go with this. And (laughs) what what happened happened. But I think what was the biggest thing for me is I wasn't prepared for the reaction. I don't, I don't think I, that's one thing they miss and probably people should tell you is when you get into TV or any sort of media, it wasn't calculated to be famous. It was calculated because I wanted to share a story. So when it gave that sort of level of fame, I totally, and I don't know how, but I bypassed that that would happen. So, when people started contacting me and messaging me and the dms and all the stuff, I was like, "Well, people are watching this totally went straight over my head that it was gonna be super super full on, and I would get a lot of like reaction from it. so I think that was a huge learning curve i didn't I didn't really want to be in the public eye. that kind of wasn't my thing. I just wanted to create something, and I wish in hindsight that I had media trained or sought media training to know how to deal with being in the public because that's not something that I, yeah.
1: I mean, there's a very, very delicate relationship between being on TV and in the public eye to being famous as well it's so so delicate and actually you say that you'd want to have learned about that but I don't think that anyone could probably train you because as you say every experience is unique and different and no one will have released a documentary like you did about Saudi Arabia so they probably can tell you the feedback and and the way that people are going to get in contact with you and and what the Mm. um, your experiences with the public are going to be like after that but it's it's certainly true i mean we've already talked about it look at kanye west like i mean look we all deal with we all deal with fame kanye. in weird and mysterious strange ways um, yeah literally. but when so when you got back um home without wanting to ruin the documentary for anyone who hasn't watched it you did have to leave early mm-hmm. from the country mm-hmm. was a lot of the backlash um when you got was the, i mean were you were you scared when you had to leave oh um, and come back again so
0: scared and even when
1: you were back in England were you kind of looking over your shoulder
0: oh yeah no I I didn't leave my room for like two weeks I I had like PTSD I came back with post-traumatic stress disorder because I literally was like I don't know people watching me or people following me or people looking for me like I was so scared and also not just scared but I was so gutted I had been building up to this moment for two three years and just for it to fall flat in what felt like fall flat after six days was devastating. Everything I'd worked towards, my entire pinnacle of my career, I was like, this is it. This is, this is the top. See you later. You have to leave the country. So I was devastated. And the BBC were like, there's no way you have enough content for a full-length documentary. There's no way. And I just thought, well, it's my fault I did this. So yeah, it was hard. Really hard.
1: What was that experience like then when you got back? Did you and you and it's Jess, right? Yeah. Did you did. and Jess watch all the all the footage and think I can actually still still make something here?
0: She definitely did. So I took two weeks off. Um obviously we both dealt with the trauma. Um and I took a full two weeks off and left London and went up and stayed with my family in Manchester just to sort of Feel like I could collect myself. And then we came back and we sat in the edit, and she, bless her, she sat in the edit, my editor sat in the edit, my exec. They all had this little amazing little team. And that's, I think, the beauty in doing it with a small production team because it becomes like this little family, which are like cocooning you and protecting you as opposed to like a big engine. um But she's incredible. I, like, there's no documentary without Jess. She's the reason I have a documentary because she caught things I didn't even know she was catching. So yeah, as soon as we knew that there was enough content, we all just were like, it's
1: okay. We have this. All the magic happens behind the camera. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. It really does. It really does.
1: And that is it for part one here on Headstrong Season 3, Creatives in Conversation with Bess Khalifa. If you're enjoying the episode, go check out part two where we carry on on much the same breath. If you're also enjoying this conversation, please do share the podcast with your family and friends and also leave a review if you can. See you on part two.